Thank you very much. Um, I'm happy to get going. Um, we don't have much time, so I'm going to have to zip through these slides um, fairly rapidly, but I'll be happy to take questions at the end and also to share the presentation with anybody who's interested. And also, I've got links to some other presentations which go into some of the points that I've made here in more detail. So basically, my argument for this paper is that data literacy is a life skill. It's not just a technical ability. Indeed, it's a social competence, as the OECD has recognized in a recent report. It's not being properly addressed at the moment because most uh, approaches to data literacy are too narrow, too limited. And this is an important opportunity for research libraries. As I shall elaborate, I think they are very well qualified to take the lead here, but working in collaboration with other key stakeholders. And that's an important aspect of it. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to sketch the context for my current research, highlight the complexity and plurality of data literacy, because there are multiple stakeholders operating here who have competing values, and that affects what people understand by the concept data literacy. I'm also going to share some promising practices by university libraries, which I think we can build on in finding a way forward here. So, um, first of all, part of the context here is the growing importance of the third mission of universities. This has been around for a long time, but what we've seen recently is um, more emphasis on this and an expansion of the type of ways that universities are um, seeing their third mission. For example, Community engagement has become a big, big a concern now. My own University of Pittsburgh has recently set up some community engagement centers in the city to enable members of the community to interact more directly with the university in relation to education, research, and other knowledge exchange activities. Another example at Pittsburgh is that the university is hosting the Western Pennsylvania Regional Data Center, which uh, gathers together data from the city and the county and surrounding areas. Mm -hmm. And indeed, the University Library is involved in that too. Uh, it's hosted by the Center for Urban and Regional Studies, but the University Library has been providing metadata consultancy to the city, so an example of the library involved in that third mission activity. One of the key things of the data society is there's a whole new vocabulary out there. Uh, it's fascinating to see how terms such as dataclism, uh, data valence, have been coined to sort of flag up some of the big issues that are there in relation to the growth of big data. Um, the quantified self is another interesting one, and that refers to the way that people are increasingly uh, collecting data to track their own activities. I mean, how many people are, have, like me, um, a Fitbit, and we, we look on our phones at the graphs showing our sort of activity, our sort of weight going up and down, the number of steps we've done, and so on. So just a little bit about the approach for this research, and, and this is a, an ongoing larger research project that I've been engaged in for the past year or so. So basically, I've been looking at literature, but not just academic literature, because what is interesting is the number of new books um, for non-specialists that have appeared in this area. And there's also a lot of trade literature that speaks to these issues. Um, 
environmental scan of organizations and their websites. Again, interesting to see the number of new organizations that are data related that have appeared in the last uh, decade, uh, particularly third sector organizations, civil society organizations, foundations, that type of thing. And thinking about the way I've analyzed these data, so I've used a number of different um, uh, theoretical frameworks. Radical change theory has based on three principles of interactivity, connectivity, and access, which are definitely key themes for our society today, as we heard in the last presentation. Wicked problem theory is particularly relevant. It's been applied to other issues in uh, libraries, for example, to research data management. But that, uh, this is a wicked problem because of the multiple perspectives, the multiple stakeholders, and the competing values underneath those. And that presents particular challenges. Looking at the datafication of society, and it's, we, we started off in libraries being aware of data-intensive science, e-science, cyber infrastructure, and computational humanities. But there are many more aspects of data that libraries are increasingly getting involved with as well. And if we look at the, the right-hand side of this slide, we can see the number of different activities in libraries that are data-related. So research libraries really have become data-intensive organizations. And that's a significant point because it means that a much, much larger number of our staff are engaged in data-related activities than might at first appear. We tend to think it's the research data specialists and maybe also the liaison librarians and possibly also the <coughs> systems people. But actually, there are many others because if we think of the way data features large in library assessment these days, <coughs> then of course, many people in the library need to uh, engage with the data that comes out of those assessment activities and to be able to understand it. So basically, all members of library staff need to be data literate just to do their jobs these days, as indeed people in the workplace, any workplace, need to be data literate these days. Calls for data literacy are coming from all sectors, from business, from education, from government, and from these new civil society organizations, as well as from higher education itself. But what do they mean by data literacy? And this is another challenging aspect of this issue, the fact that there are many different interpretations of data literacy. Back in the early part of this century, it was fairly straightforward. We thought of data literacy in terms of the skills needed to deal with those external data sets that many libraries collected, social science data sets, uh, GIS data, and so on. And then it was fairly uh, easy to sort of identify what data literacy meant. It was all about being able to engage with those data sets, to interpret it, and ideally take a critical perspective as that was the sort of uh, approach that was coming into being in, in terms of information literacy as well around that time. Literacy in general has evolved over this period and we've moved from thinking about literacy as something that's about uh, functional abilities or technical skills through thinking about applied practices and, and then moving on to critical interpretation and critical reflection. And the same is true of data literacy. But it's complicated by the fact that there are so many related literacies 
um, that this, this model from the Data Pop Alliance, one of these civil society organizations, I think captures that very nicely when you can see how data literacy draws on and interacts with computational literacy, statistical literacy, scientific literacy, information literacy, media literacy, digital literacy, and many aspects of those literacies. If we then look at how data literacy is defined and discussed in um, the surprising number of books that have appeared on the subject in the last decade, we can find there are many different interpretations here. Even within one field, such as education, we have books aimed at teachers, which uh, the basics of data literacy by um, Bone and Bartley, that, that focuses on uh, educating teachers so that they can teach statistical literacy to students. However, there are a couple of other books there aimed at teachers, Data Literacy for Educators, How to Become Data Literate, which are all about preparing teachers for data-based decision-making. In other words, using the data that they gather in assessment, the data they have about their student demographics, and other um, data related to their students in order to make appropriate instructional decisions. So that's a different concept of data literacy within that one discipline. And then we have a number of other books here, um, a couple of which are written by academics in relation to uh, research skills, dealing with secondary data, uh, producing um, experiments that are robust and reliable for graduate students. And then we have books uh, written by um, analytics consultants for business, how to make your organization data literate, developing data fluency, as well as a couple of reports that have been produced by um, some of these new organizations, such as the uh, Data Pop Alliance and the Oceans of Data Institute. Not many of these books are written by librarians, which is a sharp contrast to information literacy. Here is my sort of analysis of the different the most common conceptions of data literacy that I've found in my research so far. And as you can see, the emphasis shifts depending on whose perspective we're reflecting here. The final point about data becoming a new second language for organizations came out of a report from the Gartner organization, the technology consultancy, last year. Looking at stakeholders, the, the key point here is the number of new organizations that have popped up in the past decade such as the Data Pop Alliance, uh, such as uh, Data Carpentry, which many of us are familiar with, the Research Data Alliance, uh, the um, Open Data Institute, Data Ethics, and now and the School of Data. I mean, there's just so many of them. And many of these have actually produced resources and courses, some of which are free, freely available, to help people become data literate in terms of their own understanding of what that means. So looking at some of the library practices I think we can build on, this is the service model for um, research data management at my own university, but it draws on the um, service model from the University of Queensland, which was designed for their research support. And here you can see that um, there are basically three tiers of service providers in the data space. Um, like most libraries, there's the notion of specialists, functional specialists, 
who are experts in research data management or different aspects of it. And then there's the uh, advanced RDM providers who are the sort of middle tier, and those are typically liaison their brands, or people who look at uh, data services in the context of particular disciplines. But the important thing here is there's another level here. The assumption here is that all public-facing university library staff, all the people who are on desks and cry desks interacting with students in any way need to have a basic understanding of the data services that the library operates. So that's a much more widespread involvement than maybe we typically think about. Some of the examples of pedagogy that we can, I think, build on in order to advance our approach to data literacy. Um, the first example, um, Macy and Coates, describe how they have been teaching uh, students how to use data in the workplace in the context of undergraduate business courses and uh, postgraduate health sciences, public health. Then there's the uh, example from Carnegie Mellon University, from uh, colleagues down the road from me in Pittsburgh, um, where they've combined existing frameworks, the ACRL framework for information literacy, with uh, a new framework for data-informed learning in order to frame their data literacy teaching to modern languages students. And then finally, it's not a data literacy, but an information literacy example at the bottom, but I like it particularly. It was a presentation at the ACRL conference in 2017 where um, the librarians explained how they were teaching in one course students to understand how data literacy would help them meet their information needs for their academic needs, their professional needs, and their personal information needs. Another example of stakeholder collaborations here are um, the project at the University of Michigan where an iSchool faculty member is uh, collaborating with an instruction librarian in the university library in order to help school librarians get to grips with data so they can teach school students how to interact with data both for their classroom research projects and in real world context. So picking up that issue about how people deal with the data in the social media, for example. And then the Civic Switchboard uh, project, which is another project funded by IMLS, which is at the University of Pittsburgh Library System, where they're collaborating with the regional data center and the public library and other data activists in the community in order to help members of the public, members of the community, interact with open government and other civic data and to build their data literacy and technical skills. So I've just reached the end <laughs> on time. And these are some questions that we might want to discuss, but I'm really happy to discuss any questions that you might be interested in. Okay, thank you very much. Okay, so I'm just going to introduce our next speaker, and um, that is Ting Chung from the Austrian National Library in Austria. And Ting is going to talk about enriching Europeana, the crowdsourcing platform of the European Library.
sorry, for one second. We're just trying to get the slides up first. Um, Good morning, everyone. Um, I'm here today to present you the new project Enrich Europeana, the crowdsourcing platform of the European Library. Um, most of you probably already know what Europeana is, so I will just give you a quick summary of it. Um, Europeana the Europeana platform is a, a website that provides access to over 57 million digitized items from fields such as music, arts, or history. Um, the main part of the content comes from uh, more than 3,500 museums, libraries, archives all over Europe, and the other part of the content comes from crowdsourcing initiatives. So the goal of Europeana is to digitize the common European cultural heritage so that every citizen has um, free access to these materials um, from everywhere um, and free of charge. However, Europeana does not only run this um, website, but also has a lot of um, ongoing projects uh, designed to help facilitate the access to this shared cultural heritage. And one of the projects is Enrich Europeana. I will uh, talk about this project in detail in a few minutes, but first I want to give you some background information on how the idea to Enrich Europeana involved, uh, evolved. So for that, I have to go back a few years to the crowdsourcing project Europeana 1914 to 1918. The project was launched in 2011 uh, with the goal of collecting memorabilia and personal stories uh, connected to the First World War. And uh, in addition to 10 European national libraries and 20 film archives, we also asked the European citizens to contribute their personal items to connected to the uh, Great War to our project. And to do that, we organized collection days in 22 different European uh, countries. So people could bring their personal items to our collection days, they were photographed, scanned, uh, digitized there, and then put uh, onto the European Europeana uh, platform. We collected materials such as photos, um, artifacts, war diaries, letters, um, and also recorded many per personal stories. In total, there were 200 collection days where we collected over 218,000 um, user-generated content. So here you can see a nice um, overview of the countries we are collecting. Um, so from Lisbon uh, to Riga, from Nicosia to Dublin, we 
connect, collected thousands of memorabilia connect, connected to the uh, First World War. And for example, in Dublin, we had a collection day in the year of 2012 in the National Library of Ireland. And um, in only one day, over 600 people came and brought their um, personal items. So this was a very um, pleasant surprise for us. Uh, a lot of the crowdsourced material contains um, handwritten documents, and of course these were digitized as well. But with the digitalization comes the problem of transforming these documents into useful and searchable sources. <coughs> so digital images of handwritten documents contain a lot of metadata um, that is not provided in the information, and um, currently there are still no accurate technical solutions for this problem. So automated handwriting recognition is a very difficult and error-prone task, and te te technical solutions with high accuracy for character recognition on heterogeneous data sets like this are not available yet. So therefore, even with the increasing automation, uh, we still need the human eye, the human resource uh, for the transcriptions of these documents. And to transcribe the huge amount of documents we collected, um, we developed the crowdsourcing website Europeana Transcribers on 1914 to 1918. Um, and with the help of the crowdsourcers, it was finally possible to transcribe the huge quantity of the documents. So on the one hand, the transcriptions took place at the platform itself. And on the other hand, the transcriptions took place at so-called transcribathons. Um, transcribathons are physical events, the transcription uh, competitions where people get together, form groups, and in these groups they compete against other groups, and the group who um, transcribes the most characters wins. So these transcribathons have been cru proven crucial for raising awareness to our website and also to get our user base but also uh, to transcribe a large uh, quantity of documents during these uh, transcribathons. So uh, European Transcribathon has uh, show, shown that there are many people that are interested and motivated to work on the transcriptions of these historical documents, but uh, this project was um, especially designed for the needs and materials of the European 1914 to 1918 collection. Um, the Europeana platform, however, has a lot of other collections that contain um, other handwritten materials, so uh, there is actually an urgent need uh, to transcribe, for them to tr be transcribed. Um, and this is actually where the idea for Enrich Europeana was born. So Enrich Europeana is the further development of the Europeana Transcribers on 1914 to 1918 crowdsourcing platform and it will contain various collections of the Europeana platform. The project has a duration of one and a half years, and there are seven project partners involved from uh, Poland, Romania, Italy, Germany, and Austria. And this project is co-financed by the Connecting Europe facility of the European Union. So what are the project objectives? The first objective is to develop a user-friendly crowdsourcing platform for the transcription, enrichment, and georeferencing of different types of digital cultural heritage material with a focus on handwritten documents. And the second objective is to round-trip the enriched data back to the European main platform. So this means that we take the 
raw material from the Europeana platform. Uh, the material will be transferred to the enriched Europeana platform, will be transcribed and enriched there, and then after successful enrichments, it will be feeded back to the um, Europeana main service platform. The third objective is to automatically process and extract additional information from transcribed texts, such as names and location. And the fourth and last objective is to organize pilot events to uh, showcase the possibilities of our platform and also to test the user experience. Okay, so who is our target audience? Uh, First, we want to um, attract European citizens of all ages who are interested in culture and history and who are willing to uh, transcribe on our historical documents. Further, we want to bring this platform into the classrooms. It can be easily integrated into coursework and it might give the students a different or additional uh, perspective uh, next to the classical textbooks. And, uh, of course, we also want to attract professionals with our platform, so uh, some work that their work field might overlap with some content of the Enrich Europeana platform, or they uh, might use the Enrich data for their research or publications. The usage benefits of the platform, so uh, the, with the transcriptions and enrichments, the cultural heritage material becomes searchable and more accessible. We improve the understanding of contextual information and with the transcriptions and easy analysis, distribution and reuse of the material uh, becomes possible. The uh, new enriched Europeana platform is still in development, so I brought you some examples from the old Europeana transcribathon platform so that you just get an idea on how the website will look like. So this is actually the uh, landing page. You can first watch a tutorial on how to transcribe on our website, or you just dive right in into our documents um, and click on our stories. Then you will get to this page. Um, so here are all our documents. You can filter uh, the documents by document type. So if you want to transcribe a war diary or a letter, you can just um, choose from there. And you can uh, filter by language, text, or status. Um, the color indicates the status of the document. So yellow means the document has been um, started. Uh, and orange means the document is in review. And green means that uh, the document is completely transcribed and reviewed. Uh, so this is our, uh, the actual transcription page. Uh, in the background you have the original handwritten uh, document. And in the foreground you have this white field where you type in your own transcriptions. And everything is very flexible here, so you can um, zoom in, zoom out, you can rotate the picture, you can um, change the brightness and the contrast, or also change the position. So we try to make this page as possible, uh, as flexible as um, possible, so that every user can adjust to their own needs here. And how do we um, keep our user base? How do we motivate our crowdsourcers? Uh, we choose a gamification approach for that. So. 
uh, every user who registers gets an account that is linked to uh, our ranking system and um, we, have a, we have different levels so uh, the more you transcribe the more points uh, you get and uh, the more points you get the higher you climb up the level ladder. So, and with a higher level you also have more abilities and possibilities on our platform. Uh, we also have a user sport and leader sport so everyone uh, knows on which rank they are and how many more they need to get to the next uh, rank. Um, so what are the next uh, steps of the project? Uh, the platform will officially launch in, on the 24th of September in Vienna in the Austrian National Library. And the main theme will be 1989. So since this year it's the 30th anniversary of the fall of the Iron Curtain, we chose uh, this topic and we actually also have a European collection that is called 1989, which contains a lot of crowdsourced material and we're going to use that, of course. So I all invite you warmly to come and um, to spread the word about this and also if you or your institution has some handwritten material that needs to be transcribed, please just upload them on the Euro Europeana platform. Um, the data will be transferred to our Enriched Europeana platform, our crowdsourcers will work on them and then you will get the um, transcriptions back. And with that, I will come to an end to my, of my presentation. Thank you for your attention. Thank you, Tim. That was really interesting. Um, and thank you for keeping the time, because I know we had a little uh, delay there at the start. So thanks, Jason, for coming in to make sure we're okay with the slides. Um, our next speaker is Barry Hulham from NUI Galway. And he's going to talk about protest information activism Archive literacy and digital learning. Thanks, okay, good morning, everyone. Thanks for being here. Um, so, as the title of my paper suggests, I'll be reflecting upon the agency and protest, uh, or at least the potential protest, I think, of the archive within academic library settings and the question of information activism, um, the integrated digital learning space that is underpinned by a learning pedagogy of archival literacy, but crucially within that, again, the methodology of teaching through empathy and enforcing with our students and with our, our learners and users um, to approach an empathetic approach um, to history and to teaching of the archives in both digi digital and, and physical learning. And again, the crucial component, as we've begun to see and witness over the last number of years doing these courses, is this uh, teaching through empathy and affect, um, empowering our students to, to connect, understand, and relate to the past in the present, rather than just, and I hate to use that, just viewing and using our records. But there is more to that. Um, what we don't do is show and tell. Um, there's a lot more deeply um, research teaching uh, to that. So broadly, of course, archives are spaces of contention, of reflection. They are records generated by societies of people often under threat of conflict from war, abuse, genocide, or other violent means. And these records, in their, virtue of their existence, are at best precarious um, or at worst entirely absent. So archives can give voice to those within the past, um, advocating for a response in the present, but yet, as we know, such records can also function to maintain or enforce silence or prolong a lack of accountability, transparency, truth, and perhaps ultimately justice uh, as well. 
So again, a chief consideration of looking to address this topic is always looking to strike a balance, or at least attempt to strike a balance uh, in that equation between challenging the documented and the official narrative uh, of the past with a non-remembrance within the present. Uh, and to do so, again, I look at some processes we've created at NUI Galway at the Harriman Library um, with bespoke courses, modules, and sustainable learning programs um, that we've developed with many colleagues. Um, but to look at some points, again, some questions around this. I hate to go into the, the Brexit um, angles for so early on a morning, but <laughs> I won't use the B word after this, I promise. And even until now, the only B word was Brexit, and now we Boris as well. Um, but are we post-fact? And the short answer is no, of course not. Um, but does truth matter anymore? Of course it does, but the challenge is growing. Um, and that challenge is, can we empathise with the present? And going back to the dreaded B word, during the campaign ahead of that referendum uh, in 2016, a quote from Michael Gove that gained traction was, we've had enough of experts. Uh, which I think is an ultimately frightening uh, prospect. Um, but it does result in perhaps a currency of disinformation, untruths, um, a lack of fact-checking that puts the archive and that question of authentic evidence to the periphery of how we're teaching and how we're approaching our, our students. Um, one example of this came more recently in 2014 here in Ireland where uh, not more than a few hundred metres from here at the GPO, a highly symbolic building, the General Post Office, where the Easter Rising uh, really, really took off in, uh, on April 24th. Um, where they were launching the Decade of Commemorations program and a video was released to pr promote the upcoming commemorations. And the video that came out uh, was less than successful. As the headline here suggests in the Irish Times, the video that was to promote commemorating 1916 failed to mention 1916. Um, it was a very glossy video, very well produced, a great video for tourism and industry in Ireland, great shots of the Docklands, the LinkedIn and Facebook hubs. Any semblance of conflict or even Anglo-Irish relations was, was simply absent. In fact, the only thing that resembled conflict of any sort was perhaps Brian O'Driscoll, uh, the Irish rugby player, scoring a try against England in Crow Park. <laughs> so this is where we were uh, as recently as 2014. But looking at defining information activism, the structured and embedded, and again, ideas that I've been working on, I'd be delighted to have some feedback maybe over the course of a few days, but to define it roughly as the structured and embedded delivery of learning to archival content uh, contextualized by multimedia and multimodal information, but crucially by using legal precedents, legal archives that we have in NUI Galway and a human rights basis uh, for learning. Again, perhaps a question mark after open information equals open learning. Perhaps a question mark should be um, at the end of that. To summarise some courses in that we do teach uh, at NUI Galway, um, and again, of course, is a broad team of us. My colleague, Niall McSweeney, is here as well, our Head of Research and Learning, um, and together a group of us are working on these courses and a summary of them here. From first year library and information skills for academic success, that's a module we ran last year for English and media studies students. First year children's studies, second year, all years of history really, um, drama and theatre studies across all years, and again, PhD and MA groups as well. Um, one I forgot, uh, course I forgot to put on there was a new MA in Digital Cultures, which my colleague, uh, digital archivist Ashen Keane, and I teach a module on, um, on digital archives. Um, so one of the key collections that we have and a fantastic resource to look at embedding these uh, human rights records into teaching is the Kevin Boyle Archive. Um, some bio on Kevin, he was a very prominent figure internationally in legal and human rights study and practice, comfortably straddling the roles uh, which both intersected frequently of both the scholar and the activist. Um, his archive of over 100 boxes of manuscripts, of records, of legal cases, global human rights issues, vast amounts of correspondence and research notes across four, four decades 
of uh, human rights work from Northern Ireland through to freedom of information, freedom of religious expression in the 1990s, right through to his more latterly work before he died of Kurdish human rights cases in the early 2000s. So it's a huge breadth of material um, to work with. Uh, he was also, of course, handpicked by Mary Robinson, who will be speaking later today, uh, to be her advisor at the United Nations High Commission for Human Rights. So it brings us right up to present day. Um, and, of course, Mary Robinson's archive is thankfully with us in Inuit Galway as well, something we're very, very proud to have. Um, a key factor within this archive is the voice of young people, and this was something Kevin was very uh, adamant about in his legal work and in his activism, was the voice of young people. And again, when we look about our, our students in Galway, um, our first-year students, uh, perhaps quite frighteningly, were born in 2002, 2003, um, or as my colleague said to me, when season eight of Friends was on TV. Um, <laughs> So their grasp of history and their grasp of what is contemporary, I think, are very, very interesting. And again, just a long quote from Kevin here about how he reacted or reflected on young people in the Craigan and Derry in the 1960s and 70s. Um, they're ordinary kids. Um, you know, even just that one line from that long quote, I think, speaks volumes. And again, these very, very powerful, striking images from these magazines in the early 1980s, which Kevin wrote a lot about. And of course, more recent tragic events in Derry, such as the murder of, of journalist Lyra McKee, um, brings us directly into that learning space in the classroom to put these records directly into students' conversation and have them as 18, 17, 18, 19-year-olds today reflect on their experience um, and see themselves as empathetically reacting to uh, cases with just before um, their lifetimes. Um, again, looking at embedded these con embedding, embedding this content into our courses, um, Kevin was the director of Article 19, which is today one of the leading and largest NGOs in the world, which uh, works against censorship um, and, and towards the freedom of expression. Kevin was the founding director of Article 19 in the 1980s. Um, he was also chair of the International Committee for the Defense of Salman Rushdie um, in the early 90s when the fatwa was issued against Rushdie uh, for his work, The Satanic Verses. Um, and just to, even in that remarkable photo, you have Harold Pinter, Kauzawi Jaguri, Arnold Wesker, uh, and Francis de Souza, and Kevin there in the middle um, in a typically activist pose. Um, so it brings in the literature, the media, um, of all these different aspects of, of, uh, of what students are taking in, 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 a, in a mixed college of arts and broad curriculum. So we can support all these courses in very interesting ways. But again, there's a fragility to the mediums that we're looking at, especially in that digital learning space. It's about bringing the manuscripts into the infosphere that the students are comfortable in, which is, of course, the open web, which brings with it its own uh, complexities. There was a very, um, perhaps in legal circles, a famous case in the early 90s called Gersild versus Denmark. And Olaf Gersild was a journalist who made a documentary about a far-right group of neo-Nazis in Denmark in the early 90s. Um, the Green Jackets was the group. The doc, uh, Gersil was brought up in court for inciting hatred by virtue of making a documentary, not espousing their beliefs or ideologies, but by simply making a documentary. The journalist and the, and the documentary maker was the one implicated uh, as spreading hate speech. When we look at today the implications for social media of those very issues of how hate speech is circulated, this case is the exact model we would like to teach our students. There was an excerpt of the documentary on YouTube that we, we integrated into the classes, and it was wonderful to have that record. We didn't have that digital record in the archive. Uh, and even in preparing for this talk today, I was looking in for that clip on YouTube, and I see it's been removed. So now I have to go back and revise the teaching course a little bit for next semester, but it does show you how quickly um, the learning materials that are out of control of the archive and beyond the archive um, are simply gone to us altogether. So again, looking at this idea of empathy, and broadly speaking, empathy is that ability to understand and to share feelings. It creates a space for discussion, for information to be shared, received, distributed, documented, and questioned. And um, 
social scientists that have looked at identified three types of empathy, really cognitive, social and concern-led. Um, and sociologist Elizabeth Siegel defines social empathy as the ability to more deeply understand people by perceiving or experiencing their life situations. And as a result, we gain insights into structural inequalities or disparities. So again, we're trying to do this with our students, and in particular a group of undergrad history students. This poster on the right is from the Northern Ireland Civil Rights Association uh, in the late 1960s. It doesn't mention anywhere that it's produced by the, civil rights, the Northern Ireland Civil Rights Association. It's a simple, direct statement. Do you agree with internment, brutality, repression, intimidation, sectarianism, discrimination, and so on? It doesn't ask you to agree with their points of view. It asks you to empathise with yourself and empathise with the message and the ideology of the civil rights movement. If you do agree with internment and brutality and so on, then don't do anything. Don't react. Continue the way things are going uh, and help to perpetuate injustice. And it's a really interesting thing to put these documents into our students' hands physically. And that's the shock, actually, of the non-digital is the tangible link to teaching um, and to putting the objects into our students' hands. Again, a few excerpts from Kevin's archive. Um, again, interestingly, um, Kevin took office with Mary Robinson in the United Nations on September 11, 2001. And that's an excerpt from his diary, Begin Today at Palais Wilson. And his first day in the job was to advise Mary Robinson and the UN about how to react to 9-11. Um, a few other points then about how we can make it into uh, a very more broad and integrated look at civil rights movements today. And again, you see it becomes a transnational archive of a poster from the NICRA reacting to the civil rights movement in the United States saying you saw it in Selma, you saw it in Chicago, now take a look at Northern Ireland. Um, Kevin took a lecture tour across the United States in 1973 um, from Berkeley to Detroit and his diary from that time writes that in, when he arrives in Detroit, I was impressed deeply with the parallels between Detroit and Belfast. The tension in the air, the student protests, the conversations, all had the black and white issue to the fore. Just prior to my arrival, the Detroit police had killed a black man arising out of the activities of a new surveillance police squad. These very streets remind me of the ghettos of Belfast. So again, we can bring it right up to present day with Black Lives Matter through the archive and through other digital learning spaces. So one very last point uh, I'd like to bring, because I know time is against me, so I might skip forward to something that we're doing at the moment, which is uh, a new oral history project. Um, this is as much as we can do archival activism in action. And if people may not be aware of the um, coverage of late around mother and baby homes in Ireland, and in particular the Tume mother and baby home, which is roughly half, a mo uh, half an hour from Inuit Galway in the town of Tume. Um, this is a project to create an oral history archive based on survivor testimony from the women, and again for people who may not be aware, who were largely single, poor women uh, and pregnant, who were forcibly detained against their will and separated from their newborn children through forced adoptions in these so-called homes across Ireland in a network of church-run institutions um, that operated in Tume's case from the 1930s through to the mid-1960s. Um, the, the, while the, the women who went uh, outwards of the home afterwards were always denied the opportunity to find their children or indeed their own records. And instead of being an agent for openness or for information, the archive has in fact become another barrier to them. It is an institution in itself and there's a distrust of the archive, understandably. So this is where oral history can have very definite and very urgent effects, counteracting archival gaps and silences, intervening in the silence. Um, with the Tune project, its strength will be its composition and its entirely survivor-led process. It is being led by the survivors and also my colleagues in Inuit Galway, particularly Sarah Ann Buckley in history and John Cunningham as well uh, in the Department of History. Um, it's, an, um, it's a project to empower their testimony 
and simply to be the archive for be a vehicle to make their story public once more. A very final point, and is to summarise this, perhaps one uh, academic in the US who makes this point excellently is Dr. David Wallace, who talks about the trust and the imperative of trust in the archive. And he writes that the archives offer possibilities for a more accurate, multi-voiced and multi-perspective version of the past. Um, I think that simply can't be uh, reiterated too strongly. Um, perhaps a very long quote. Again, I'll jump forward to the very last slide, which is perhaps fitting to give the final word to Kevin. In his very last published work in 2010, um, which was a foreword to a book called A Vision, uh, a Vision for Human Rights, uh, and Kevin writes that despite the often scattershot coverage by global media of human rights issues, the wretched conditions and suffering of millions are for the most part ignored. So again, despite the headlines, the sound bites, and continuously scrolling of our respective news feeds, there's a much bigger story, a much larger narrative um, that is not being heard, um, and the archival record can perhaps be a force, hope, I hope, to break this silence. Thank you very much. Thank you, Barry. Um, okay, so our next speaker is Stefan Biederker. He's from the ETH Library in Zurich, in Switzerland. And Stefan is going to talk about open data for the crowd, an account of citizen science at the ETH Library. Good morning, everybody. Um, in my paper, I give an account of open science at ETH Library. I present uh, the combined strategy of implementing an open data policy and using crowdsourcing to improve metadata. I argue that these two activities promote each other, making citizen science a success story. The first part outlines the basics of open data at ETH Library. The second part traces the beginning of crowdsourcing at ETH Library's image archive and the expansion of citizen science activities to other ETH Library units. Uh, my account focuses on the conditions of success. ETH Library has adopted an open data policy. This means that we render bibliographical metadata and digital copies publicly accessible and reusable, provided that this is not opposed to by any third party rights. Open data at ETH Library pursues the following objectives. Open license, whenever possible, ETH Library makes its data available using the public domain mark or a CC0 license. If uh, the prerequisites for this are not given an open uh, CC license is used. Transparency. ETH library indicates reliable reuse transparently for each data set. Currentness. ETH library regularly updates variable data sets. Freedom from discrimination. We do not restrict uh, access to the data. Uh, the data is available to anyone at any time and without registration. Free download, so our data are free to obtain. 
uh, machine readability. Uh, it, we provide our data in an open um, and whenever possible machine-readable standard format. And availability, we provide our data via a suitable interface or platform. Obviously, uh, this is an adaption of the definition provided by the Open Knowledge Foundation. Uh, we uh, promote open cultural data. We have participated in all Swiss open cultural data hackathons so far, being a co-organizer of the 2018 edition. Um, we upload photographs to Wikimedia Commons and contribute data sets to the Swiss Open Governance Data Platform, Open Data Swiss. ETH Library has an extensive and historically valuable collection of more than 3 million photographs, postcards, aerial pictures and portraits in its image archive. More than 500,000 photographs and images have been digitized and can be searched for on the platform EPIX Image Archive Online. The Image Archive was the first unit to start a crowdsourcing campaign. After Swiss Air, the Swiss National Airline went bankrupt in 2001, ETH Library happened to acquire the Swiss Air Photo Archive. In 2009, Former employees of Swisser were invited to improve metadata. They were given the chance to share their knowledge on around 45,000 images in an easy way, which this determined group of experts accepted um, enthusiastically. You do not need to uh, know German to see that uh, there's a huge difference between the original title, which is one word, Werkstatt, and the new title given us by the crowd uh, to this uh, image. Um, the image archive was also a pioneer in terms of implementing an open data policy. At the beginning of 2015, it changed its business model. Instead of trying to sell high resolution images, which had not turned out to be profitable, it started to offer its photographs for free download, even in the highest resolution available, and for commercial use whenever there were no third-party rights. Given the positive outcome of the Swiss Air project, the Image Archive opened its database to comments by any user on any image in December 2015. On January 18, 2016, Neue Zürcher Zeitung, one of the leading Swiss newspapers, published an article even before our marketing campaign had started. And th this turned out to be a breakthrough, which resulted in a report in uh, Swiss television's main news program the very same evening, and extensive media response in the days and weeks that followed. Um, in the wake of this unexpected success, the Image Archive started a blog uh, called uh, Crowdsourcing News and Experiences from the Community. Since May 2016, it published riddles and appeals to get involved. The crowd was asked to help describe images on Mondays, 
and the feedback received was documented on Fridays on the blog. Rankings and community events uh, stimulated crowd participations. All in all, uh, you can see the statistics. Um, uh, 1,050 volunteers had improved the metadata of about 57,000 images with uh, nearly 60,000 hints uh, by June 1st. One reason uh, for, the positive for the positive response is the fact that the volunteers could download their preferred images in high resolution and reuse them thanks to ETH's library, ETH library's open data policy. In 2018, the Image Archive launched a campaign on Snapshot, um, which has the subtitle The Participative Time Machine. Snapshot is a platform for interested participants to position and geolocalize historical images on a virtual globe. Uh, this virtual globe is based on the latest satelli satellite images and uh, Swiss Topos uh, 3D buildings tool. Snapshot is a project conducted by a Swiss partner from the Canton du Vaux. It allows um, the camera position, the uh, line of vision and height from which the photograph was taken, all the place names visible in the picture, such as uh, places, rivers, fields, mountains, and so-called footprints to be calculated. Uh, so we go to this third dimension uh, with this tool. Um, it has become highly uh, addictive, as the head of the image archive uh, predicted at the launch. Um, promoting competition by publishing statistics and adopting a gamification approach proved to be a great success. Uh, 175 participants have georeferenced 88% of the 60,000 aerial photographs we have published since January 2018. Why does it work? Apart from open data and gamification, uh, community management is the key to success. Social media and the above-mentioned blog allow our staff to interact intensively with the crowd. This, however, is not enough. The volunteers are invited to ETH Zurich at least once a year and receive awards in public for their contributions to our catalogs. Six of them were thanked uh, by publishing video interviews in which they explain, in German language, why they participate in our campaigns. These videos are available on YouTube and accessible for the long term on ETH Zurich's video portal. Given the positive outcome of crowdsourcing at the Image Archive, uh, the opportunity to comment on images was implemented in the collection of astronomical instruments, the art inventory, and most other EPICS catalogs. EPICS is the platform uh, uh, for images, photographs, and illustrations of ETH Zurich. 
EDH libraries, uh, the map our map collection also adopted a crowdsourcing strategy in order to georeference old maps for further academic use and integration in geoinformation systems. Um, more than 1,000 historical maps were processed in, within a few months in 2017 when the map collection made them available on the platforms um, Old Maps Online and um, georeferencer.com and at that time addressed the crowd via social media channels. The next uh, campaign is scheduled in autumn 2019. E-Manuscripta um, the, is the cooperative digital platform for manuscript materials from Swiss libraries and Swiss libraries and Swiss archives. It is technically hosted by ETH Library. Uh, it has offered a transcription tool for the crowd since 2018. Until recently, only image scans of archival documents uh, were published. Um, the crowd has not been as active in transcribing documents and thereby creating full text as in improving metadata of photographs. Uh, it was very interesting to hear the, the, um, the talk on uh, Europeana uh, from, uh, from our perspective because we have some kind of a challenge to find the crowd. So the, the reasons uh, may be the following why they don't respond so um, intensively as with visual materials. The group of people potentially transcribing documents is not the same as the crowd interested in photographs. So it is crucial to address a new community and to encourage new people to co-create content. Transcribing documents takes more time and effort than identifying the theme of a photograph. Visual material is more attractive and evokes me more emotions. And um, a final point, uh, several institutions together sponsor the content of e-manuscripta. Uh, it seems to be trying more to organize effective inter-institutional campaigns uh, than campaigns with only one stakeholder, as it was the case in the image archive. As a result, um, we are planning a transcribatum, so we are planning a lot from Europeana, um, in order to meet the potential crowd at ETH Zurich and foster friendly competition. Uh, the ETH University archives also invite uh, professors of history to teach courses based on materials published in e-manuscripta. The idea is that the students have to transcribe sources before they analyze them. These efforts are still to come in order to transfer the positive experience with crowdsourcing of visual material to textual documents. Um, in 2018, the University of Zurich and ETH Zurich uh, opened the Participatory Science Academy. Its goal is to foster open and participatory collaboration between science and society and between scientists and citizens. By the time of uh, the Participatory Science Academy's uh, foundation, ETH Library had become a recognized competent partner 
in citizen science projects. Therefore, the head of the image archive uh, was invited to the advisory board. You have had a very positive experience with crowdsourcing and collaborating with citizen scientists. Starting at the image archive, we shared our materials as open data and engaged in community building on site and in the virtual sphere. What is crucial are continuous efforts and permanent interaction with the crowd. That said, citizen science is a very rewarding enterprise for libraries. Thank you for your attention. Thanks for having me. Uh, my name is Paul Sommerskutter. I work at the Austrian National Library as a project manager and UX designer. And today's talk is about our institution's crowdsourcing platform. Short outline for today's talk. Uh, we will discuss the project's background, uh, present key functionality of the web platform that we design and implement in-house, uh, talk about our guiding principles that led us through uh, the design and concept phases, discuss some learnings uh, since the platform's launch, and provide an outlook of what uh, will be next. So let's start with background information about the project. Uh, the platform was designed and implemented by two people, my colleague Stefan Frühwirt, uh, who is responsible for software engineering, and me, I am responsible for user experience design and the project management. And we're also quite happy that since the launch in October 2018, our colleague uh, Tim Chung, who already gave a talk today, is also involved in the project's communication. So our first uh, crowdsourcing campaign is part of the Austrian National Library's vision for 2025, and it's conceived to be a long-lasting initiative. Uh, the key element is our web platform that has been designed and implemented by us. There are some good reasons why uh, libraries opt for uh, participatory initiatives. For us, uh, crowdsourcing is about engaging the general public uh, in a meaningful way. And secondly, it's uh, important to us to open up selected unpublished collections to everybody. And thirdly, we want to react to new trends uh, in knowledge generation in order to, uh, to drive uh, innovation at the library. So where did we start? Uh, during the initial design phase, uh, we of course investigated reference projects. Uh, there have been numerous crowdsourcing campaigns in various libraries around the world. So the proof of concept and the benefits of crowdsourcing have already been demonstrated by others. Uh, just to name a few well-known ones, you probably know all of them. Uh, there have been initiatives at the NYPL, the ETH library uh, in Zurich, the Swiss Art Project, for example, or the Royal Library in Denmark. And it was very important to us to let these projects influence what we were going to do. 
and that's our first crowdsourcing campaign uh, we've opened for the general public. Uh, it is called Austria from Above, uh, which is the English translation of our campaign's title in German. <laughs> for this, uh, we digitized and uploaded 5,000 uh, beautiful historic uh, aerial images uh, that depict Austrian cities and landscapes in the 1930s. However, these images lacked standardized and meaningful description in order to be searchable. Uh, so we invited the general public to contribute their knowledge about these images. On the platform, we intended to present these images elegantly uh, and enable users to search for uh, specific images. And for this, we designed five tasks users can do. Uh, image categorization, image tagging, georeferencing, and two quality assurance tasks. And of course, where applicable, we use controlled vocabularies for the description of the images. For example, for the task tagging, uh, we use a subset of the integrated authority file. And we also use the web service GeoNames to display standardized location names. So let's briefly discuss the key functionality of the crowdsourcing software. Um, if users open their browsers and uh, connect to a platform, that's the start page. That's the, the first thing they will see. We provide the campaign's name. Uh, on top, uh, a short description about what users can do and why we need their help. And we want them to be able to jump right into these images. So when we scroll down, we see uh, a few statistics that outline uh, the progress of the work done how many categorizations, tags, and uh, geolocations we have collected so far. Uh, scroll down a bit further. There are five tasks with short descriptions uh, each that will lead to new knowledge about these images. The green colored ones uh, are for new data and show progress bars. The blue colored ones are for quality assurance uh, where you can't input anymore but only edit data. And they are not online yet, the blue ones. Uh, therefore, there are no progress bars yet. So the quality assurance is also designed to be done by the crowd. Further down, uh, here's a leaderboard on the bottom. Uh, our gold, silver, and bronze medalists are most active users. And some contact mail address, of course. And on the bottom of the page, uh, there's a map of Austria depicting all images that have already been geolocated by the community. So that's our start page. Uh, and if we want to jump into the uh, tasks, first up, categorization, task number one. Uh, on the left side, I can see the image that needs to be described. Uh, on the right side, there are some categories I can apply to the image. We pick these categories. Uh, as a project team, as a user, you can't edit these uh, categories. Uh, we ask users whether they see mountains, lakes, cities, villages, and so on. So it's very collection-based uh, or related to the collection. Uh, but as a user, I don't have to contribute to every image. I can just always skip images and continue with another image. So this first task is about a very rough, very general initial categorization. Next task is called tagging. Uh, in this task, I can enter tags, uh, and I can also browse some suggestions for tasks. Um, for tags. Uh, compared to the first task, uh, this allows for much more options on the user side. So the data stems from the integrated authority file uh, and geonames. And this example shows the inner city of Vienna. So I type in the German word for uh, Vienna, Wien. 
And by the way, I can zoom the image and pan it uh, freely since we're using IIIF technology. Third task, georeferencing looks like this. I see a map provided by Google. I can either drop a pin directly on the map or search for a desired spot uh, by entering a location's name. And these pins appear on the start page later on. I can also toggle between image and map for easy editing, but let's go back to the start page. So what's the benefit of, this, of these contributions? Uh, well, I can search and filter images by the, collection, uh, by the collected crowdsourcing data. So let's click on the little magnifying glass icon in the upper right corner. And here's our search and filter screen. I can enter various search terms on the upper left corner, but I can also browse the images, for example, by county, landscape, or natural environment. And by clicking these categories on top, uh, the grid view on the bottom gets updated accordingly, like this. So next, let's discuss a few design principles that led us through the development of the platform. Uh, our first design principle, uh, that's a very general one, keep it simple. Uh, and it required us a lot of work to, to simplify. So the processes at the library are very complex, so we didn't want to show them to the users. We tried to focus on few aspects, uh, but tried to, try to create a meaningful uh, and engaging experience, and tried to reduce functionality whenever we could, and tried to keep the user's attention focused. So back one example, one of our tasks. Uh, you don't have many options in these tasks. Uh, you can start contributing without the need to walk through tutorials or extensive documentation. And we also try to lower the barrier uh, that keeps people from contributing uh, since the quality assurance is done by multiple users in another dedicated task. Uh, it's also no problem to provide wrong information here. Let's talk about the general information architecture and structure of these tasks. On the left side, there's always the image area. This image is always freely navigable. Again, we use a IIIF viewer, OpenSeaDragon for this. On top, there's the main navigation where I can switch uh, between tasks, uh, go to my user profile. On the right-hand side, there's the contribution area where I can always double-check what I'm going to enter. We use the same principle in other tasks as well. So this is task number three, and that's our structure, still the same. Design principle number two, uh, collections take center stage and not the platform. Uh, our goal was to let users explore the images without uh, distraction and also without the need to contribute if they don't want to. Some people just want to view the images. So that's one of our aerial images, and that's how they are incorporated on the platform in our view-only mode. So here you have only few user interface elements that could possibly distract you, so you can focus on viewing these images and decide later if you want to contribute descriptions. Also in the tasks, we try to allocate as much screen estate as possible to view these images. Design principle number three, uh, visual identity and branding. Uh, the importance of this cannot be stressed enough. For the crowdsourcing initiative, we needed our own uh, visual identity and our own visual banner to, to rally under. So that's the official logo of the Austrian National Library. Uh, the red part is an open book, by the way. And that's, 
that's the logo we designed for the crowdsourcing initiative. We transformed the logo for our purposes. So we inverted the logo. It's not about the institution anymore. The circle represents a community, a crowd uh, surrounding the library. Uh, and it's used now for other participatory initiatives in the library as well. We use the logo for all kinds of stuff, for example, as progress bars uh, or as a user avatar. And each crowdsourcing campaign has its own key color, but the general identity stays the same. What do I mean by that? That's the key color of the first campaign, and that's how we use it on the platform. And a new campaign will have a different key color, so it's easier for users to, to recognize and differentiate between multiple campaigns. Last design principle, uh, enhance user motivation. As we already heard today, it's very important to keep your user's motivation high. That's a key aspect of crowdsourcing initiatives. In the physical world, we will also be doing a small appreciation event uh, later this year, hopefully, uh, with an award ceremony for the most active users. And on the platform, it's central to design the information architecture in a way that it is motivating to use. So again, those gold, silver, and bronze medals. And we also strive to be transparent in terms of progress of our multiple tasks, so where we are at the moment. Uh, did we succeed with this concept? Um, we are certainly quite happy with the amount of contributions and registrations on the platform. So since October 2018, uh, about uh, 1,700 people contributed well over 100,000 times in total. Next up, some learnings, very subjective ones. Uh, the selected collection of historical aerial photos was well suited for the first campaign. Um, as we already heard, images are very an emotionally appealing uh, collection, uh, media type, and it turned out to be not controversial. It had broad interest groups, so it was a very fitting first image collection and a good start for the initiative. During the first weeks after the launch, there is no time to implement new features, uh, something we had to learn the hard way. Um, Towards the end of software projects with uh, appearing deadlines, uh, project teams tend to postpone features to the weeks and months after the launch. However, it's just not, there's just not much, uh, enough time to, uh, to continue the implementation work because you're faced with lots of other uh, completely different tasks, community management, user feedback, code refactoring, and so on. So, yeah, plan ahead in this Broad coverage helps to build a community, though it has other effects too. So media coverage, of course, is a great facilitator to build a community, and we were quite lucky that we had some. But also this results in higher demands for the technical infrastructure, and you get all kinds of very high usage peaks that fall down uh, immediately afterwards, and we underestimated these peaks of usage. So it's better to be prepared for this. Guiding principles in planning and implementation also apply after the launch. Uh, as a project team, it's central to stay true to yourself and your initial decisions. However, after the launch, you become much more exposed to user feedback and also other departments in-house. In this phase, it's good advice to stay focused uh, and stick to your initial plan. Yeah, ways to talk to the community would have been useful. We had no blog uh, at the time of the launch, no dedicated social media accounts, so 
it was uh, we were quite busy with the platform's development, but this would have been really important. I totally agree with you. And we, but we were quite lucky that users still contributed their knowledge and talked to us via email. Yeah, only a fraction of the registered gets the work done. I think this has been shown in other crowdsourcing initiatives as well. Uh, for us, at, on our platform, georeferencing is more fun than tagging. We didn't know that before, but <laughs> users like to georeference more than they like to tag, at least on our platform, and they are very precise. Uh, and that's a really great thing uh, to learn for us. Uh, there was basically uh, hardly any incorrect information provided. So some next steps, uh, we're gonna publish the quality assurance tasks in the near future, uh, wrap up the campaign Austria from above, prepare some next campaigns and publish a crowdsourcing block, which will look like this, where we can address various topics surrounding the initiative. So this concludes my talk today. Uh, thank you very much. And you can also take a look at the platform. It's in German only at the moment, um, crowdsourcing.onb.ac.at and just get in touch with us. Thanks. Thank you, Paul. Um, I'm going to invite all of our five speakers up to the stage, please. Um, we'll do some questions. Okay, so I'll go back to the floor. Does anyone have a question? I want to start with the first one. Okay. Hi, this question is for uh, Paul, the last uh, contributor. Um, I'm from the National Library of Scotland, and we have, uh, back in 2013, started to build our own crowdsourcing platform uh, to begin with just for tr transcriptions of manuscripts. And we stalled a few years later, and actually it has never actually gone live. And I think one of my questions now, as we're looking into readdressing this and um, with IIIF having crowdsourcing features embedded now, do you see benefits of not using tagging or transcription features within the IIIF viewers and sticking with your own platform? What are the, what are the advantages of your platform in comparison to that? Uh, transcribe something. You have all kinds of other 
challenges with the quality assurance compared to what we have now because our quality assurance for for the uh, geolocations will be uh, just basically a yes or no uh, thing and it's completely different for, for transcription so can't really yeah can't really help on, on this issue I think Hi, um, thanks so much to all of you. It was really great, uh, great to hear you all. And my question is really for Sheila and Barry together because I was really struck between the comparison of your talks and, and the information. And Sheila, in a more data-driven society, do you think that there's a role for us who work in libraries and archives of talking about the human and um, measuring other things? I'm really struck that what we choose to measure then becomes what we value. And in that case, just thinking about Barry's talk, is there something else there that we need to talk about in terms of the stories of people's lives and people's experience? That Do you see that as a danger of data-driven or do you see that um, not being such an issue? Uh, I, I think it is a danger. Uh, and as we heard yesterday um, about you know, um, design not being neutral. And, and uh, I mean, another example in the, in the data sort of landscape is this issue about algorithms not being neutral, uh, algorithmic bias, and that's a really important aspect of data literacy. So I think there are, there are a lot of these um, hidden issues that are, that are not sort of well publicized at the moment that I think need to be taken into account in educating people about data. I mean, it needs to, I mean, it's very interesting to see that, that as, in addition to those books that I put up, which, you know, were specifically about data literacy or had a, a specific uh, coverage of data literacy. There's, there's a, quite a, a large number of other books that have been produced for the general public, for the non-specialist, about data, about big data in society. There's a lot of concern out there. Some of them are written by, many of them are written by journalists uh, and who, who, who want to demystify what's happening in terms of data. Uh, and I think that's, um, you know, something that, that libraries can, can really grab hold of because libraries do have this potential to act as uh, more neutral um, service providers, more neutral educators who can, um, you know, synthesize all these different perspectives and, and make people aware of all these different dimensions of data. Yeah, um, I certainly agree with Sheila as well, and she made some, so many interesting points about the, the changing definitions of data and the volumes of data. And, I think when it comes to the point of archival literacy and data literacy, we ask an awful lot of our users. Um, I look at the sciences and we don't ask our science students, we don't hand them a copy of the periodic table, push them into a science lab and go come back with a new chemical compound without any sort of training. Um, and I think the point users are students at 17, 18 years of age to a near endless supply of data through a catalogue is, is, is futile really because they may do their compulsory coursework, they may do their projects, um, they would be a one-time user only. And they will not be return users, they will not be ongoing users. Um, the more we can instruct them in sustainable learning, uh, in a positive experience, um, and also we forget that we, we think they are digital natives. You know, they're social media natives at best. Um, they're not digital natives in the sense of digital learning, digital navigation, archival literacy. So I, I can't emphasize, I think my own belief is that we need to do so much more on that. Yeah, and actually one of the other projects I could have mentioned that's also happening in Pittsburgh uh, has been one about youth data literacy where one of my colleagues at the iSchool was collaborating with uh, children's librarians in the public library 
to help um, young people understand their digital traces as a result of using um, social media so that the data that was uh, they were generating themselves and I think that's one of the big issues there but understanding your own sort of data silhouettes as my colleague described them. <clears throat> Libraries are often known to um, uh, wanting to be the authority of the data um, of, of their collections. I wonder if you have experienced any sort of inner resistance uh, to let, let the crowds in doing work with your collections. Perhaps Stefan and Paul having collections? Yes. <laughs> uh, yes, we do. Um, I think we started in the image archive because there was no inner resistance. We had inner resistance when expanding this to other parts of the library, but they were then, they saw the success at the image library and they went step by step. They understood that it, uh, it might be a good idea not to resist. And uh, one step we didn't do, and this was also discussed, but we didn't do it, uh, is uh, to let the uh, crowd work directly in our systems. So there is always a barrier. They send us some information and then there is a plausibility, plausibility control and there is a, a librarian uh, to check this information on a very low level. So we don't spend much time, but we spend time on that before it appears on the platform. So th this is uh, our experience. Um, yeah, for us it's the same. Uh, but we were, we have different, uh, you guys were uh, ahead of us. So <laughs> we have uh, lots of other projects to refer to. And this made it much easier on a strategic level in the library uh, to say, well, there are some crowdsourcing projects that work really well, and there's certain benefits uh, to this. And for the quality assurance, uh, we have a special situation now at the library because we're switching in between um, yeah, repositories. And so we collect the crowdsourcing data only on our platform, and whatever repository uh, software solution will get then we are able to uh, export it to, to the main catalog. Time for one more final question if anyone wants to ask. Um, it's a quick question, just um, regarding the um, text transcription. Um, are any of you crowdsourcing people doing um, text encoding? So detailed markup tagging of the words rather than just transcribing the words. Yeah. Uh, with us they do and I think that it's part of the problem that it's uh, rather complicated. So it's, uh, it's, uh, you have to know a lot about transcribing before you can really start. No, we don't at the moment. Um, but there's other initiatives at the library that deal with, with the um, markup um, of 
And just a few housekeepings as you leave. Uh, coffee is next. Uh, apparently the fastest coffee option is in the Beckett Room, which is near the Edmund Burke Theatre. The people on the T-shirts will uh, direct you. Lunch takes place today in the dining hall and just follow the people with the T-shirts, but dessert will take place back in the arts block. So you'll be near your uh, speaking sessions. And if you are attending the welcome reception and you want to go to an old, uh, to tour the old library, please sign up for the tour at the registration desk as soon as you can. Thanks very much.